from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Tuesday, April 17th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Anders Breivik says he'd do it all again. We're going to have the latest on the trial of the man who admits to killing 77 people last July in Norway. Also, girls are poisoned at a school in Afghanistan. Officials say it's the work of those opposed to female education. We'll hear about the challenges still facing Afghan women and girls. A lot of people talked about women on the way into Afghanistan, and now the folks who are talking about it on the way out are waging a very lonely battle to get Americans to care. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. And by WGBH, producer of Lydia Celebrates America, presenting weddings, something borrowed, something new. Lydia cordially invites viewers to be her plus one on this cross-country matrimonial odyssey. Tonight at 8, 7 Central on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Anders Breivik was back in a courtroom in Oslo, Norway, this morning for day two of his murder trial. Breivik has already confessed to carrying out a car bombing and a shooting spree that left 77 people dead in Norway last summer. The trial is focusing on his motives. Today, the far-right extremist said that he turned to violence to defend Norway from the evils of multiculturalism, and Breivik said he'd do it all over again. One of those following this trial is Martin Sanbu of the Financial Times newspaper. What was it like to be in the courthouse today, Martin? Well, today was the beginning of Breivik's own explanation and the beginning of his examination by the prosecutor. And it was a more, to me, surreal spectacle. First of all, unusually for a Norwegian court, Breivik was allowed to read out a prepared statement. And there were quite a few altercations with the judge who was getting impatient, telling him to speed it up. And he insisting that he had already cut it down from the original 20 pages and and being very particular about how important it was that he should be allowed to explain his ideology. Then there was also the beginning of the examination, which again was quite surreal because the prosecutor, Inga Bayer Eng, one of the two state prosecutors, took a very, not a very confrontational or aggressive tone. And several journalists picked up on this in the press conference afterwards but almost a friendly tone, and some victims complained about that. What what do you think was going on there? I think that the prosecution is trying to uh, undermine the image that he's attempting to project, which is of uh, an ideological thinker who's taken the consequences of his analysis. That's how he tried to present himself in his red statement. What you see is not only, as the prosecution said, they don't believe his allegation that he's part of an international network, the one that he calls the Knights Templar. They say it doesn't exist. They say it doesn't exist. I think they are hinting they don't even believe these meetings took place with other nationalists, ultra-nationalists. And I think they are also trying to basically pick holes in his own political thinking. Breivik, when he speaks, seems, and you have written this, seems to be coherent. He seems to be able to articulate his thoughts as offensive as they may be very well. 
he's also self-congratulatory about the violence that he committed. He's saying that the attacks were sophisticated and spectacular, the most spectacular in Europe since the Second World War. He said that he thinks there's a difference between brutality and evil. How did he define them? He compared himself to the wartime U.S. leaders who ordered the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki with the atomic bomb. He uh, said, well, at that time there was a decision to kill hundreds of thousands of people, many innocent civilians, in order to prevent a greater evil, the continuation and escalation of the war in the Pacific. And he said his action should be seen in the same light. He admitted it was brutal and gruesome. Those are words he used. But he said this was necessary in order to avoid an even greater disaster in the future. Financial Times reporter Martin Sandbu in Oslo, Norway. Thank you. Thank you very much. On both days of his trial so far, Anders Breivik has said that he went on a killing spree last summer to, quote, defend Norway from multiculturalism. Today he called the capital Oslo a multicultural hell. Daniela van Dijk Venberg is with Oslo's Intercultural Museum. She says there's a growing need in Norway for institutions like hers to emphasize the positive side of multiculturalism. Well, the need is, I think, now more obvious than than ever, and that is to promote uh, cultural diversity and to promote, uh, to start a dialogue between uh, people of of different cultures. So both the immigrants that are coming to Norway, the immigrants that have been living in Norway for quite a long time, and Norwegians, that's what we try to do. Where did you yourself come from? I'm from uh, Holland. Interesting, because you would think the culture would be very similar. Uh, Is the intolerance that you were working against right now something that you experienced? Yes, I definitely did. Yes. How so? I came to a small town in Norway. There is something here in Norway that's called the Bikdedere. I don't know how that translates in in English, but it's something like uh, the animal of, of small cities, which comes up when people who are different sort of stand out in the crowd. How did you stand out, though? I didn't stand out that much color-wise, but uh, the, I started working in a restaurant. And in that restaurant, there were a lot of racist uh, opinions voiced. And uh, whenever these were voiced, I talked out against them. And then when they react to this, it's like, OK, but you're not one of them. And then I always say, well, but I am. I am an immigrant. One of the things that we do at our museum is um, hire staff that has a multicultural background. We try to uh, work as we preach, so to say. One of the things that Anders Breivik said today in his lengthy statement in court was that certain neighborhoods in Oslo are no-go areas for anybody but Muslims. Uh, What's Mm. your reaction to that? Uh, this is absolutely not true. Our our uh, museum is uh, in the middle of one of these areas that he describes. I go there every day to work. I've not experienced a single uh, thing that was, was threatening to me at all. And I've been working in that area for nine years now. Do you think that there will be a time one day when, when Norway won't need a separate museum, a separate facility to teach people about cultural diversity to teach people how to be tolerant and why? That's a good question. We've asked ourselves that question uh, thousands of times. When uh, this institution started, we said that the, the museum is going to work until there's no need for us anymore. 
But um, I think in one way or the other, intolerance will be present uh, always and there will always be a need for uh, our museum. We just have to go into our society and address modern nowadays times and and there will always be something uh, which we can work on, unfortunately, maybe. All right. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Daniela van Dijk van Berg is with the Intercultural Museum in Oslo, Norway. Nice to have you on the program. Thank you. In this country, both Democrats and Republicans have a multicultural campaign strategy, at least when it comes to Latino voters. Both parties are unveiling new efforts this week to attract Hispanic support in the presidential election this fall. The tricky part is that Latino and Hispanic voters are a diverse group with a wide variety of concerns and priorities. Reporter Monica Ortiz Uribe found that to be the case even within her own family. Monica is based in El Paso, Texas, for the public radio collaboration Fronteras. To all you politicians running for office, my family's vote is up for grabs. But first, you have to engage them. Take my mom. I stuck my microphone in front of her while she washed dishes. So do you pay attention to politics? No, I don't. I don't have time. I'm always too busy working. My mom is Teresa Ortiz Uribe. She's a wife, a homemaker, and a very busy business owner. Here's what she does. Okay, two girls left. What are your names? Destiny. My mom provides entertainment at kids' parties. On a typical weekend, she can do up to eight events. The last time she got excited about voting was in the year 2000, after her grandmother became a U.S. citizen. She and my mom were very close. I remember as a little girl in the summers going with my grandmother to vote, and it was very important for her and my grandfather. That was back in a small town in northern Mexico. I asked why her grandmother's civic engagement didn't follow her to the United States. Where my grandmother used to live, you would go outside at night, sit down with all your neighbors, all the block, and talk about politics. And it was a lot of fun, you know, uh, going to the campaigns. Here, we're always so busy working. We don't even talk to our neighbors. And so we really don't know what's going on. Deep down... My mom feels like U.S. politicians don't listen to people like her. They only listen to college-educated people or rich businessmen. She suggests candidates throw neighborhood block parties so people like her can get to know them. So let's say if a can- one of these candidates came up and knocked on your door and said, what are your concerns? What would you say to the candidate? Well, first of all, my concern is like, Health insurance. Like, we don't have health insurance. I would like somebody to really, a candidate, uh, have health insurance for everybody or something that we can afford. My mom is only vaguely aware of the health care reform package Congress passed two years ago, mainly because it hasn't been fully implemented. Health care is one of the top three concerns among Latinos nationally. The other two are jobs and education. Immigration ranks high, mainly among immigrants themselves. My mom, though, is first generation. Next, I call my cousin, Valerie Uribe. Hi, Monica. Hi, Valerie. How are you? Valerie lives in San Francisco and is in her late 20s. She just got her first big job out of law school. She gets her dose of politics via Facebook and news alerts from the Wall Street Journal. This is how she describes herself as a voter. 
Well, I'm independent right now. I it it just depends on the issue. Sometimes um, I'm more conservative in my voting. Sometimes I'm more liberal. Last presidential election, Valerie supported Republican John McCain. So did my grandparents. When I ask Valerie what issues are most important to her, she says education and gay rights. Um, my best friend in the whole wide world is gay. And I just, you know, to me, there's a, you know, I'm Catholic as a background, but to me, there's a separation of church and state. And I think that civilly, they should be given the same rights and opportunities as we are. A recent study by the Pew Hispanic Center says Latinos are like my family, divided between liberal, conservative, and moderate. On gay rights, Latinos are more liberal. But on abortion, 51% think it should be illegal. Younger Latinos, like my cousin, tend to believe in a woman's right to choose. You rock! Next, meet my uncle, Cesar Uribe. He's a middle school principal in El Paso in one of the poorest zip codes in the country. On a sunny Thursday morning, he high-fives kids outside the football field. How are you all doing? My uncle Cesar didn't vote until he was 26 years old in college. His education, he says, has made all the difference. I was educated and came to school, and I became successful. And I think that people should be given that opportunity. My uncle is a supporter of the DREAM Act, which would give undocumented students a chance to become legal U.S. residents. His vote will go to whichever candidate he feels is a stronger advocate for education. Ultimately, he believes, it'll be educated and empowered Latinos who will awaken the sleeping giant at the ballot box. For The World, I'm Monica Ortiz Uribe in El Paso. What kind of book is worth $14 million? Find out a little bit later in the program on PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Some war veterans are recognized by the Pentagon for their bravery with a Medal of Honor, and some people who perform good deeds are recognized by the Catholic Church as saints. It's rare for one person to be considered for both honors. Father Emil Capon from Kansas, Pilsen, Kansas, was a U.S. Army chaplain during the Korean War. During one firefight in 1950, he was with a unit that was ordered to retreat from a position that was facing heavy bombardment. Father John Hotze from Wichita, Kansas, knows well what happened next. Father John, tell us the story. Father Capon chose to stay back with the wounded men. Uh, he didn't want to leave them alone. Uh, it was known at that time that the North Koreans and Chinese would not take wounded prisoners. Um, it was their intent that the prisoners would be marched to prison camps. If they weren't able to march, they weren't going to deal with them. So they would, were usually executed if they were not able to walk. There is actually one wounded man, a Chinese officer that Father Capon had taken into the little area that they were at, and they were throwing grenades into that area and killing the wounded soldiers. So Father Capon convinced the Chinese officer that he needed to stand up to have them stop uh, attacking the, their little unit there. Uh, the following day, they were going to be marched to a uh, gathering area for the prisoners. Uh, it would be a march of about 30 miles at that time, Father Capon was gathered with the other prisoners, and as they were marching along, he noticed that there was one American soldier that was in a ditch, um, 
he had obviously been wounded and there was a North Korean soldier that was there pointing his gun at, at this man's head. Father Capon went over and he pushed the North Korean soldier away. It was a man named Herbert Miller. Uh, Father Capon then bent over and picked up Herbert Miller and he proceeded to carry him the 30 miles to this gathering area uh, where they were gathering the prisoners. There were several times that that uh, Herbert Miller told Father Capon to stop carrying him. And Father Capon's response was that if I put you down, they'll kill you. So I'm going to carry you. He also shared his food with the prisoners. Um, there in the prison camp, he showed what kind of a man he truly was. He was known as the good thief. He would go around and, and steal food from the guards and for the prisoners. He would make sure that they were taken care of. At night, he would sneak from hut to hut to give some words of encouragement to the men. Uh, all of the men that were still alive from that prison camp that knew of Father Capon said that it was, if it was not for Father Capon instilling that hope and desire to live, that they probably wouldn't have made it out of the prison camp. He never made it out himself, though. No, he uh, died in the prison camp um, in what the prisoners called the death house. It was the camp hospital. Uh, they called it the death house because those that were put in there didn't come out alive. Uh, they knew that once he was put in there, he uh, would not be given food, would not be given medicine, uh, would not be given water. I wonder for you, since you are eager to see him be named as a saint, what kind of inspiration you draw from him? He was a man that I do believe is a saint. I think he was a man that was very heroic. But if you look at the individual actions that Father Capon performed, he did things that each and every one of us could do. Granted, he did them under very severe conditions. He did them under very austere conditions. But what he did, giving his life for others, uh, is something that each and every one of us can do. A potential saint with a pipe. Right. (laughs) He would light up his pipe and he would pass his pipe around for everybody to take a puff. Um, One man said that. He said, Father, he said, you know, I know we probably had tobacco for the first couple of weeks that we were in that prison camp. But he said, after that, he said, I have no idea what he was putting in that pipe for us to smoke. (laughs) He said, said, it certainly didn't taste like tobacco. He said, sometimes it tasted pretty bad. But he said, it was something that we welcomed just because Father Capon was sharing what he had with us. Father John Hotze of the Wichita Catholic Diocese in Kansas talking about Korean War Army Chaplain Emil Capon. Thank you. Thank you. The West African nation of Liberia is still rebuilding, almost a decade after the end of a brutal civil war there. For years, the only foreigners who visited Liberia were United Nations peacekeepers or aid workers. Tourism was not a viable industry. But this week, a cruise ship docked in Liberia. Its passengers are on a month-long voyage off the West African coast. Now, the fact that Liberia is on the itinerary is a vote of confidence in the country's recovery. Bonnie Allen has more from the capital, Monrovia. At the port of Monrovia, cargo workers are used to unloading bags of rice and used clothing, not white-haired tourists from America. But last night, as Liberian dancers pounded the concrete dock, about 140 tourists arrived on a National Geographic cruise ship. On board, bartenders serve up rum cocktails. The passengers, mostly retired academics and scientists, relax on plush cushions. So historic is this visit, the vice president of Liberia, Joseph Buakai, even boarded the ship to greet them. I just came from the United States a couple of days ago, speaking to a group of people, encouraging them to invest. Little did I know that I will have a captive audience right here. 
Investors and tourists were scared away by Liberia's 14-year civil war. It left 250,000 people dead and destroyed the country's infrastructure, such as electricity and roads. After nine years of peace, the country is slowly rebuilding. Early this morning, the tourists, most of them in their 70s and 80s, load into buses to go golfing, take a canoe ride or tour the capital Monrovia. The trip is organized by Lindblad Expeditions. It advertises adventure tourism for the affluent. A basic package is 30 grand. Lindblad used to focus on cruises that included safaris in East Africa, but the company's Ralph Hamelbacker says problems with Somali pirates have forced Lindblad to explore new waters on the other side of the continent. In a perverse kind of way, the Somali pirates have done West African tourism a bit of a favor. It's strange to put it that way, but a number of ships that would otherwise be in the Indian Ocean uh, are now on the West African coast because of piracy. Still, Hamelbacker admits Liberia has a long way to go before it has the capacity to host bigger cruise ships or large numbers of tourists. The capacity for accommodating tourists is strained with our small ship of 145 people. By the time uh, 600 or 800 or 1,000 passenger ships show up, uh, Liberia will have needed to build an infrastructure that will allow that. So it will come. We are approaching the island and we're so Local guide right. Peggy Williams beams proudly as she leads her busload of tourists. She's with one of Liberia's only tour operators, Barefoot Safaris. It's a historical site of Liberia because it was where the settlers landed in 1822. For those who love history, Liberia's is fascinating. It's the oldest republic in Africa, and it was founded by freed slaves from America. As Williams gives her tour, her optimism is obvious. In this tour, you can never tell, maybe with all the sites that they are seeing, the attraction, they may be moved to come back to Liberia to invest. So it's quite exciting. But for Judy Hughes, this is simply a trip down memory lane. She's a retired history teacher from Pennsylvania. 46 years ago, she was a Peace Corps volunteer in Liberia. I cried when I left. I always loved Liberia. We certainly, we cried when we heard all the troubles. So when this trip came about, it was a wonderful opportunity to come back. But she didn't stay long. Just 19 hours after docking, Hughes and the other visitors reboard the ship. Next stop, Sierra Leone. For the world, Bonnie Allen in Monrovia, Liberia. You can see photos of the cruise passengers during their vacation stop in Liberia. We've got a slideshow at theworld.org. This is PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, about 150 girls are poisoned at a school in Afghanistan. We'll find out why. And later, the battle against incest in Pakistan. My father didn't spare my sisters either. We'll hear one victim's story and find out why many Pakistanis prefer not to confront the problem. Those stories and more coming up on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. 
I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH in Boston. Today, about 150 girls became ill at a school in northern Afghanistan. Officials say the school's water supply was poisoned by conservative radicals. This isn't the first such attack. Journalist Gail Lamont has covered women's issues in Afghanistan for many years now. She says despite progress, there's still a lot of opposition in the country to the idea of educating girls. There is a very strong element of conservatives who would like to keep things just as they were and who are fairly sympathetic to the Taliban and to other anti-government forces, whether they're directly involved with them or not. And in their view, conservative Islamic principles say that girls should not be educated. One would think that the blame would generally be put on the Taliban, but the Taliban has, at least from what we're told, dropped its opposition to women being educated, and officials today are blaming this latest attack on conservative radicals. How do you hear that blame? There are any number of forces in Afghanistan who are opposed to girls' education, and there are a lot of groups that constitute this insurgency and anti-government forces. And to be honest, nobody ever really knows who they're dealing with. Um, They have good intelligence on occasion as to which of the groups it is. But there are a lot of conservative forces that have been gaining ground, particularly as talk of peace deals with the Taliban get closer and closer. And the question is, you know, whether Karzai will move more toward the conservative side as it looks more and more likely that um, conservative forces will emerge. Does President Karzai of Afghanistan have a stake in women being educated or uneducated there? He is walking a very fine line. He has made a lot of moves towards women's rights and in favor of girls' education and women's ability to work, contribute as entrepreneurs, as parliamentarians, civil society leaders, all of which they're doing now in pretty significant numbers. But he is also, um, like everybody in power, would like to stay in power. And so he is trying to walk this fine line between conservative forces who are increasingly gaining ground and his desire to please his largely Western donors who want to hear more about women's rights. But that suggests that sentiment against girls being educated is widespread. Is that gaining ground? I don't think so among the public. I mean, if you look at public polling, and I've spent a lot of time talking to fathers and mothers in different parts of the country, they want their girls to be educated. And I'll tell you, even in Kandahar City, even in uh, northeastern provinces that don't get a lot of visits from NGOs, these girls are really hungry for education. Have they been able to go to school over the past 10 years since the U.S. went in? Yeah, I mean, you have nearly 3 million girls in school in Afghanistan and thousands of girls who have graduated from university you mean who since wouldn't 2001. Have, since 2001, they wouldn't have been able to before. Not under the Taliban, for certain. I mean, they came in in 1996 and immediately closed girls' schools. So do the attacks have any effect? Do they do what the perpetrators intend them to do, and that is dissuade girls from coming back? They scare people. They frighten families who already are worried about security. And right now, security is the question hanging over everything in Afghanistan. No one knows what 2014 means. Will civil war return? And so what it does is just multiply the uncertainty. But if you talk to the girls, they are ready to go back to school and they fight to go back to school. You mentioned 2014, talking about the exodus of American troops. In the bigger context, the United States has been pushing the issue of women's rights in Afghanistan It did so when it first went into Afghanistan, when it sent troops there. Now that Americans are eager to get out of Afghanistan, is the issue of Afghanistan's women still on uh, Washington's agenda? I have a piece in Foreign Policy today about how, you know, a lot of people 
talked about women on the way into Afghanistan. And now the folks who are talking about it on the way out are waging a very lonely battle to get Americans to care. You know, now two thirds of the country in the latest polling is saying that they don't want to keep fighting this war. And they are really running up against this battle to keep Americans involved and engaged on an issue that they really believe matters at a time when everybody just wants to go home. Journalist Gail Lamont is author of The Dressmaker of Karkana a book about the experience of women in Afghanistan under the Taliban. Very nice to talk to you. Pleasure to join you. Incest is a problem in all countries around the globe. It's also the kind of sexual abuse that's least likely to be reported in many places. That's because the victim's relatives are often reluctant to tarnish the family's reputation or because police officials don't want to investigate incest allegations. Both of those factors are part of the problem in Pakistan, as reporter Habiba Nosheen found out. Zoya is a slim woman in her late 30s. We meet in Karachi inside the home of one of the few people who she has trusted with a dark secret that has haunted her for years. She asks us not to use her real name because of reprisal from her family. It's a very difficult topic to talk about. It's something very hard for me and I'm extremely nervous right now. Zoya's voice shakes at times. Dressed in a white shalwar kameez, her shoulder-length hair is pulled back. And then she begins to tell her story. My father had been abusing me since the time I was a little kid. Sawyer recalls the details of the sexual abuse she faced for years at the hands of her own father. At times, tears rolled down her eyes. When sexual abuse happens in Pakistan, she says, adults and even relatives are reluctant to get involved. That's especially true when the abuse comes at the hands of another family member. Incest and child abuse happens all over the world. But Zoya says in Pakistan, it's even worse because no one wants to help. In this society, we pretend it's not happening, majority of people. Even if people know it's happening, they'll turn their face out the way. They'll say, we don't want to get involved. Zoya says she told her mother about the abuse, but it didn't stop. In fact, it made the situation even worse. I told my mother, and after that, my father wouldn't let me talk to anybody. He wouldn't let me talk to anyone at all, not even my family, not anybody at all. The moment somebody came and stood with me for a second, or I stood with someone, he immediately said, what are you talking about me? What are you talking about me? And uh, that way he managed to keep me isolated for most of my life. I'm Manise Bano, um, Executive Director Sahil, and we work against child sexual abuse and exploitation. Bano and her organization, Sahil, track reported cases of child sexual abuse in the country. In 2010, a total of 2,252 cases were reported, almost a 12% increase from the previous year. And among those cases, she says incest is the least likely form of child sexual abuse to be reported. Bano says cases like Soha's aren't uncommon. Mothers don't have options. They often have to live within that same family. They can't get up and go anywhere. Soha says every time she would turn to her family, including her uncles, for help, she was given the same false promises. Oh, don't worry about it. Your father won't do it anymore. And she wasn't alone. My father didn't spare my sisters either, which is the reason why I'm still alive, although my sisters are gone. After years of abuse, her sisters committed suicide two weeks apart when Zoha was 18. Their deaths haunt her. She says she feels guilty that she wasn't able to protect her younger sisters from her father. Experts say 
There's another reason why stopping incest has been particularly difficult in Pakistan, because no one here wants to admit that that can happen in an Islamic country. There's this, uh, you know, state of denial that this cannot happen in our family, it cannot happen in our country. That's Zohra Yusuf, the chairperson for Human Rights Commission of Pakistan. I think it's really underreported because it's uh, linked to a family's honor in many ways. It's a crime that's covered up by the family itself. Yusuf says if a child does go to the police in Pakistan, she's rarely believed. Often, the police won't even file a complaint. Instead, they'll send the woman home saying that she is immoral for saying such things against her own father. And Yusuf says that child victims who speak out are often ostracized by their families for tainting the family's honor. That's something that's totally taboo and totally denied here because it's not supposed to exist in, in an Islamic society. Not everyone thinks that the situation is so grim. Takwir Fatma Bhutto is the Minister of Women Development for the province of Sindh. She defends the work her government has done on the issue. The government has continued to work on legislation dealing with sexual abuse and domestic abuse of women and children. If you say, well, Pakistan just doesn't have laws, Pakistan has everything available, but we just need people who will work on these issues. To look for creative solutions to the problem, the group Sahil has started to create animated films to distribute them to public schools. The films titled Meri Hafazat, which means my protection in Urdu, tackles the issue of incest. Back at the house with Zoya, she tells me her sexual abuse only came to an end with the death of her father. How did he pass away? He died a pretty violent death. I'd rather not talk about it. Okay. Good mind. He was murdered. By family member? We don't know. I don't know. Okay. I have no idea. Um, the police never found out. As for me, I was glad that he was dead. My only regret was that he didn't die earlier. For the world, I'm Habiba Noshin. Support for Habiba's report was provided by the Fund for Investigative Journalism. A version has been published by The Atlantic. You can read it online and see a powerful video of Zoya telling her story at theworld.org. $10 will get you a best-selling e-book these days. So why on earth would the British Library spend $14 million on a fusty, dusty tome? Claire Bray is the British Library's lead curator of medieval and earlier manuscripts. What is worth that much cash, Claire? Well, it's the St. Cuthbert Gospel, and this book is a book of absolutely unparalleled significance because it is the earliest intact European book. It was made at the end of the 7th century in the northeast of England, and it's over 1,300 years old. It's preserved in absolutely amazing condition because it was placed in the coffin of St Cuthbert, who was one of Britain's most important medieval saints, and it was discovered in his coffin in 1104 when it was opened in Durham Cathedral. So here it is, a 7th century manuscript uh, discovered, as you say, in the coffin of a Christian saint more than 900 years ago, and it's in pretty good condition. What does it look like? 
It's an absolutely beautiful book. It's very small. I can hold it in one hand and it has a beautiful decorated dark red leather cover and in the centre a raised motif of a vine which it's thought may possibly echo the text I am the vine, you are the branches which is found in the book because it's the book's known as the St Cuthbert Gospel because it was placed in St Cuthbert's coffin but the text in the book is the Gospel of St John. So what's the historical value of this particular text, which is all handwritten. It gives us a window into that Anglo-Saxon world in England in the 7th century because it's written in Latin and it's written in a beautifully clear script which looks almost as if it could have been written yesterday. It's 1,300 years old. Yeah. I'm going to assume that you don't have it with you there right now. No, it's on display. <laughs> it's on display <laughs> under lock and key, I assume. Where was the uh, coffin found? the coffin that contained the book. So St Cuthbert died on Lindisfarne, Holy Island, which is a little island off the northeast coast of England, just near where England joined Scotland. That's where St Cuthbert um, was very famous Christian um, missionary in the 7th century. This is the point in history, you know, when England is being converted from paganism to Christianity. Anyway, St Cuthbert died in six. Eight, seven, and was placed in a stone coffin in Lindisfarne. And then in 698, he was elevated to sainthood. And we have, through Bede's uh, life of St Cuthbert, an account of what happened. They took him out of the stone coffin, and being a saint, they found his body was miraculously incorrupt. It hadn't decayed. And they placed him in this new wooden coffin, which they'd had specially made, and it seems at that point the book was also put in the coffin. And then after that, Lindisfarne was the subject of um, Viking raids. You know, the Vikings came across the North Sea and invaded um, the northeast coast of England. And so the community of St Cuthbert, the monks, had to leave Lindisfarne. They took the wooden coffin with them and Cuthbert's body inside it and the book. They travelled around the north of England and southern Scotland and they eventually settled in Durham. And then following the Norman conquest, a new cathedral was built in Durham. And to celebrate the um, building of that cathedral, and they opened St Cuthbert's coffin in 1104 and that's when they discovered the book. This book has been around and it was in your hands or hand. You said you could hold it with one hand. Yeah, absolutely. You can hold it closed in one hand. And that's, it's a really amazing experience and gives you a really direct connection, I think, with that 7th century world, which can seem so remote. And it's it's really remarkable. This book is, you know, the pages are made of vellum, which is made from calf skin. The pages are sewn together with flax thread. So it's a completely organic object, but it, yet it survived 13 centuries is in absolutely amazing condition and we're absolutely delighted to have saved this book which is a real national treasure. Were you a little worried you might spill some coffee on it? (laughs) We don't allow any (laughs) food or drink anywhere near it and we only handle it in very controlled conditions. (laughs) Very wise choice and maybe one day do you think it might be digitized and become an Uh, e-book? We've just digitized it. You have? We've just just digitized it and we've put the uh, images on our website so they're available free. Good. And we'll make them available on our website as well. We'll make a link that would be lovely. at yeah. theworld.org. Who would have thought that this manuscript that's... Over 1,300. Yeah, over 1,300 years old might be available as an e-book. And the Dean of Durham said yesterday he was sure that Cuthbert would share our delight at this news. So I thought that was lovely. <laughs> really lovely to talk to you. Claire Bray, who is curator of medieval and earlier manuscripts at the British Library. Nice to talk to you. Thank you very much.
Our global hit and geo quiz is on the way. This is PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. For our geo quiz today, we are off to a city where the art scene thrives. It's the southernmost city on New Zealand's North Island. It has a robust film industry and music scene. Just ask Barnaby Weir of the funk reggae band The Black Seeds, who are based here. It's the arts capital in New Zealand, and um, I guess that's because there's a lot of theatre, there's a lot of good music happening uh, happening around the city. For a small city, it's, it's got this creative flair to it. That flair led the Lonely Planet Travel Guide last year to dub this place the coolest little capital in the world. We want you to name this cool little arts capital in New Zealand. We're going to have the answer after we hear from the Black Seeds themselves. Here is the group's track, Pippi Pip, from their new album called Dust and Dirt. Toast to you, you've made it through the worst I've been. It's been hard for you and isn't over yet. And faith, we hold you in our hearts. Always in our hearts, yeah. Just bring soul business. Got to bring soul business. A soul taste of music from the Black Seeds there. They are based in Wellington, the city dubbed the arts capital of New Zealand. Wellington is the answer to our geo-quiz. Barnaby Ware, who we heard from just a moment ago, and Daniel Wheatman are members of the Black Seeds. Daniel Wheatman told us that the city contributes to the band's style of funk, reggae, and soul. I think there definitely is a, a sound for the like us, the Black Seeds. Um, we're isolated down there in the Pacific, and I think our landscape influences us. Maori culture, Polynesian culture influences us, and um, I think just naturally we've achieved having our own sound. I think that's kind of interesting landscape uh, crafting sound. How does? How yeah, does I, that think, I think I think like if we were in a city, I think we would probably it would change it would change the music. I, I reckon you know, and you're in a busy city. You know, we've just been driving around through New York, and it's really busy and hectic. And I think that can put you in different moods. You know, how would you describe in, the mood? It's exciting, a bit stressful as well. You're blocked in, you know, you, your perspective, you know, you can't see the horizon. All you see is just a whole lot of buildings all the time. And I think that, that can really mess with your mind, I reckon. Barnaby, and, you too? Uh, you agree with that? Um, yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, we're all products of our environment, um, you know, and, um, and New Zealand has, you know, vast expanses of, of farmland and tropical rainforests and things like that and um, we appreciate that that horizon as Daniel was saying you know you can actually look out and that gives you a, uh, a good perspective I believe. It sounds like it gives you an awful lot of latitude in your playing and I wonder if you you know what if you were based in New York would you would you have the same kind of sound would you do live shows the way you do now which is described as fantastic? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think, you know, we, you can't hide from where you're from and, and something that the Black Seeds uh, do well and that we're proud of is, you know, who we are and where we're from and that comes across on the music. So I wouldn't want to change that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think it would, yeah, affect the music if we, if we moved over here. But I think at the end of the day, if we're making music that, and writing lyrics that we believe in and that are, you know, from the heart, then... Uh, you know, it doesn't doesn't really matter. I think just just speaking the truth is important. 
I want to hear one song that struck me for a couple different reasons. One is because the brass is so pronounced that it reminded me of, I don't know if you know the band Chicago, but the, the band from the yeah. 1970s. Uh, let's mm. hear a little bit of this. This is Love Me Now. I love the opening of that. Was Chicago anywhere in your conscience or subconscious, or, or were there other influences there? I'm not sure that specifically Chicago was 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 there in the, in the realm of, uh, of consciousness, but you know, in terms of influence, we're highly influenced by American music and American '70s uh, brass funk bands, and James Brown, and, and, and all kinds of soul artists. Um, so yeah, that's kind of built into our DNA, I guess now, our musical DNA, and comes through. Um, it comes through in that in that sound. Um, it's a lover's rhythm. Um, yes, the brass is very prominent, and we try to make it a little bit dirty. And um, yeah, it's, it's it's a nice lover's track that one. Not to be too America centric, but when you guys sing, you really don't have accents at all from from the ears of an American. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We try to be. I think what happens in New Zealand is. Um, some artists try to Americanize their, their voices a lot, and I think that we don't. We're quite neutral in comparison to, you know, some some artists. Like who? Well, this uh, hip hop artists and and um, you know, um, just do I it. Don't really want to. Yeah, us. just. Uh, <laughs> no, you do it now. <laughs> there's no, there's a bit on. of an American twang. Yeah, but we we try and stay. I think the, no, the movement. No, go back. You know what? Don't give us a name. Just do it. The American accent. Uh, what like this one? Uh, really cool. You dudes are so cool. Um, it's so great to be here in America. I'm so excited about your sound. It's so original and and um, and the dwarves and those guys in, in Wellington and, and Peter Jackson. He's just so cool. Figwit. Mm. So excited over here for you guys. The, Flight of the Concords. I love it. <laughs> I detected a little bit of George W. Bush in there somewhere. Uh, oh dear. Along Thank with- you, America. <laughs> Thank you, New Zealand. <laughs> Along with Mike Myers and, uh, and a few others from Saturday Night Live. That was, that was really wonderful. Thank you for doing us. Um, You're welcome. Speaking of Figwood and, uh, and yes. the comedy duo Flight of the Concords. Yeah. Brett McKenzie used to be part of your group. That's right. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I wonder if you guys have kind of maintained your sense of humor as a band since Brett left. Is that important to you? <laughs> We, we we take our music seriously, but you, you've got to lighten up and and um, you know it's got to be fun. But we're we're good friends with Brett. We're from the same city, and um, I've known him for a long time. And those guys are classic. And you know he was always working on Flight of the Concords at the same time as as the Black Seeds, and um, and he's just done so well. And we're we're lucky to know him. We're lucky to be his friend. Yeah, and the and the the fun in your music remains. No, definitely, yeah. The fun is in the music. Maybe maybe because we're an eight-piece that we can, you know, if someone's having a bad day, you can just leave them alone. Maybe it's harder to be in a in a three-piece band, maybe. Or maybe if you're in a three-piece band and you don't have anybody funny in the band. Or <laughs> Oh, no. It could be. Every, oh, Lord. Every, every possible equation you come up with. I guess it's just harder to bring seven people down than three people down. Mm. You can't hassle all seven people at once. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Not worth the effort. Barnaby and Daniel, so nice to talk to you. 
Thank you. Thank you very much. Daniel Wheatman and Barnaby Ware of the Black Seeds. The group is playing a gig tonight in Ithaca, New York, and then it's off to Europe before they head home to Wellington. You can check out their itinerary and watch videos at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins. We're back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by contributors to the PRI Program Fund and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International.